everybody, this is Pierre Quinn, and you're listening to episode number 119 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. My guest on this episode is Natasha Wallace, author of The Conscious Effect, 50 Lessons for Better Organizational Well-Being. Before we jump into the conversation with Natasha, I just want to thank you for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast for your listens, for your shares on social media, and even for your reviews. As I indicated in the last podcast, we got to get to some of this backlog of content, some amazing conversations that I've had over the past several months that I have not released, and I want to release them to you. And one of those conversations is the one that I'm sharing today. Now, Natasha Wallace is founder and chief coach of Conscious Works, an organizational well-being company. As a former HR director, Natasha left her job having reached burnout. It led her to recognize that there are two fundamental things getting in the way of people staying well at work, self-knowledge and self-care. She set up her company and wrote the book, The Conscious Effect, to help fix that problem. She now inspires a well world of work, coaching and advising leaders and their teams to create healthier and happier workplaces through a greater focus on well-being and its connection to high performance. Here's my conversation with Natasha Wallace. Of the Leading Wild Green podcast by Natasha Wallace. Natasha, thanks for being my guest today. Thanks for inviting me on. Okay, so before we we take a deep dive into your book, how how did you get develop an interest in in HR and human resources? Okay, well, I actually came across my um, record of achievement from school the other day, which uh, which you get given when you leave school. So I was fifteen when I left school, and in there, at the age of fourteen, I'd written a personal statement that said that I want to work in business and I want to help people. So it reminded me that at a really early age, I actually wanted to do that. And so, you know, I I ended up working in business, helping people. Um, I started off in recruitment, um, so trying to find people jobs. And, you know, I did that for a while and enjoyed it, but I didn't really like sales and so I went in-house to be a recruiter in-house and then I just started getting involved in all aspects of HR recruitment was never enough mm-hmm. so I'd sort of you know I, people used to say that I had my fingers in many pies and then I, I guess my role expanded and I sort of started doing more um, like a wider talent and retention type role and then at, you know at some point along the way I took on the the sort of head of HR role and uh, I didn't I didn't ever look back. At what point did it click for you that this idea of being in business, running a company, or even HR itself uh, was more? It was more to it than maybe what you're taught in school or maybe what we read in other books. That at the core of it is taking care of people. Like when did that first click for you? Um, it was probably when I had my own team of people, which was quite early on. I mean, I picked up a team in my sort of early twenties, um, and made 
you know, some really, really big mistakes <laughs> when it came to managing them. Um, you know, when I think back, I realized that actually I was, I was really sort of managing tasks. Mm. And what you soon realize is that managing tasks doesn't motivate anybody to do a good job and to come into work. So probably in my 20s, when I was managing my own teams, and I thought, actually, you need to really sort of pay attention to people and get to know them. Um, And then in HR, you know, your whole job is about making sure that people have got what they need to do a good job. Um, And that's not really about the tools and resources. I I mean, it is at a fundamental level. You need to give that. But, you know, you would see the relationships between managers and leaders and their people and just how pivotal they were for people to be able to do a good job. And so quite early on in my HR career, you sort of realized that the single most important thing for you to do was to help that relationship between managers and employees. The hardest thing to do, actually from an HR perspective, um, but but the most important. At, at, at what point did, in the, in the middle of your own burnout experience, mm. did, did, did you kind of lose, and you talk about that in your book, there's, there's a point where you just kind of lost hope in humanity. Um, <laughs> you know, like, at, at, at what point in your own uh, professional journey, your own leadership experience, it it felt like the bottom fell out and you know you didn't know which way was up and you didn't even know if you wanted to continue doing this anymore yeah I think it was when I felt like I was hitting my head against a brick wall um trying to convince people to do things differently from a, a leadership perspective and I like I really really don't want it to sound as though um I'm sort of hypercritical of of other leaders because I was getting stuff wrong myself. Mm-hmm. But um, often in HR, you believe that you're there to, you know, create the best place to work, to really help people excel, to help them be developed. But you have to work in an environment where change is enabled and where leaders have the headspace to actually concentrate on what employees need. But in the modern world world of work, it's really difficult to do that. You know, they're trying to deliver, you know, the end product, the end service for the client or the customer. Um, They tend to be ridiculously busy. It's not like they're sitting around twiddling their thumbs, waiting for HR to show up Mm -hmm. and say, let's do some engagement, guys. (laughs) Let's start talking to your people. Um, You know, they're super, super busy anyway. So I think often... The people who in the organization, whether they be in HR, whether they be in learning development and change, even fellow leaders, you know, when they're chomping at the bit saying, come on, we need to do things differently and better, which means changing the way we behave. Very often you just you haven't there's nobody that's got time to listen to that when they're just doing delivery. And I think probably I became quite despondent because I, uh, you know, there, were, there wasn't, people didn't have the headspace to make the change happen that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I probably just took it very, very seriously. Um, and, and actually, you know, now I reflect on it and think I, I probably, I, pro- I probably could have done some things differently. And the people who I worked with probably could have done some things differently, but you know, 
Mm-hmm. Um, hindsight is a fantastic thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So at what point, you know, going through these experiences, recognizing organizations need, need to change, pace and intensity is not happening in the way that you think it should happen. At what mm-hmm. point do you do you hop on the boat of, I should probably start my own company and, and make this happen? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's interesting. Well, I mean, really, really quickly after leaving that job, even though I was feeling pretty rubbish at the time, I thought there's got to be a different way. There's There's got to be some other way of doing this. There's There's so many leaders who are struggling. So, you know, along with my frustration was just a reality that there were leaders who were in a really difficult position where they were trying to keep the wheels on the bus, so to speak. They were trying to keep the business going Um, and they were being criticized either by HR (laughs) or by their own people or by their fellow leaders for not doing, you know, what they they thought was important. So and as a leader myself, it was really tough. I mean, it's a tough gig being a leader so I sort of thought actually I have got the luxury I guess of being able to take a bit of time here to reflect on all the best leadership I saw and I've seen over my career um, and also what didn't work including my own experiences and consider how I bring that to life in a way that can help leaders make better choices and it just was so obvious to me <laughs> that the starting point was self. Um, I I didn't have enough awareness of myself to avoid burnout, which was a big shock to my system. But also leaders just don't have the time for self-reflection and for that consciousness that I talk about so much now. Um, and unless, I mean, I I wonder now if I had somebody like me in my ear Every day going, you know, you need to take some time out. You need to reflect. You aren't at your best. You know, if I had some sort of critical friend who was saying that to me, would I have done things differently? I just don't know. Um, But the book, yeah, I mean, the book almost fell out of me when I when I stopped working. It didn't require a huge amount of um, thought. The research did because I wanted to do all the sort of research to back up the thinking. But in terms of like the dawning realization of what was necessary, um, sort of self-awareness, consciousness, taking time out to think, taking care of your mental health, um, understanding yourself and others better. That's all just seems such an obvious way to lead better. Your book, The The Conscious Effect, 50 Lessons for Better Organizational Well-Being. Frame for us, define for us, what what do you mean by conscious and, and consciousness? Yeah. Okay. So in, in a, in a business world or an organizational world that is so focused on delivery, it's really, really easy to get up every day, go into work, deliver, 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 come home, eat dinner, maybe check in with the kids. If you've got, you know, the headspace to do that, sit down, watch TV, go to bed, go back into work the next day. And the same thing happens, you know, on repeat. Um, so firstly, that doesn't give a huge amount of time for personal growth and reflection. So I would argue that most people don't really know whether they're at their best. There's a lot of people who think they are, you know, I'd argue they're not. Um, there's a lot of leaders who think they're doing great leadership work. I would argue they're not. <laughs> um, and I certainly, I speak to a lot, a lot of employees now and they're struggling, you know, we're not getting it right for them. And the only thing that I can see that they need more of is a relationship 
with their leaders and a bit more understanding and a bit more support. It's, you know, this isn't rocket science, yet it's so often missed. So unless you're conscious of all of that stuff, unless you're conscious of yourself, unless you're conscious of how you're coming across, then you you can really end up going in, delivering each day, thinking you're doing a good job because your measures of success are delivery. The measure of success isn't, have I um, enabled people to be at their best today? You know, I just don't think that many people have time to ask themselves that question. But I also think that, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there who aren't massively satisfied with their lives in general. Um, you know, they're not, they're not in happy relationships or they don't have the right balance. They don't see their kids enough. Um, maybe they see their kids too much. I don't know, but whatever, they're not, they're not happy. And rather than realizing like they have some choice in that through waking up and really being honest about what's going on for them. Um, you know, they can, they've got some different choices. Um, and when I say waking up, I mean consciousness by becoming more conscious, by becoming more aware. Um, unless they unless they are honest with themselves, then they they're potentially destined to a very very unsatisfactory life. Mm. And I I guess part of my wake up was like I've got this one chance. I have this one chance to do this life well, and I have this one chance to help other people to do their life well. What do I need to change in my life to make that happen? I changed a whole heap of stuff, you know, over the course of the last three years. I've I've changed uh, it both in myself and the sort of external environment around me. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't woken up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What? Because what, you talk about this idea of, you know, we're moving into just, you know, a, a new type of you know, revolution, a, a new industrial revolution. And when I look, look back on the past, uh, at least from an American context, you know, there's a time in American culture where, you know, manufacturing industry, you go to work, you punch the clock, you stand on the line, you work your, your four hours, you take lunch, you work your four hours, you go home. And all of this kind of nuanced thinking and relationships, we don't have those conversations. We just go to work and we come home. But now you're suggesting that for the most part, you know, it's we can't just put people into holes and pegs and expect them to give their very best. What are some of the nuances that you've seen over the years that makes makes it difficult, especially from some of our seasoned leaders who've been effective in an old model um, to really resonate or embrace this idea of you need to wake up. and You need to be more conscious, really, to get the same input out of your organization. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think leaders can lose touch with reality. And and I, I was one of those leaders, if I'm honest. So I can speak from personal experience. Um, but I think often you work your way up through an organisation, you lose touch with what it feels like to be on the front line, on the shop floor. Yeah. You know, the person who's dealing with the angry customers, the person who's having to, you know, deliver on the deadlines, the person who's having to do the routine work every day. Um, the person who hasn't got the flexibility to just duck out for a couple of hours and see their kids or whatever because they haven't reached the heady heights of senior leadership. Mm. So I think it's really easy for a leader to turn around and sort of almost be like, I don't know what you're complaining about. You've got a job. This is a nice office. You know, we pay you well. 
you've got some nice clients or customers, like what's the big deal? What's the problem? But actually, there is sometimes a reality check, which is you do not walk in the same shoes as the people that you employ. (laughs) And so I would suggest (laughs) um, that maybe experiencing their world, you know, every now and again, understanding who they are and what they are and what they're going through would actually give you a bit of a better understanding of why they want something different. So I think that's, that's one thing. And in a world where leaders are under the cosh delivering constantly, you know, they have rarely have time to connect, you know, with the people who, who work within their organization. So I think that's one thing. Another thing that I see literally on a daily basis, um, coaching people is that, you know, there's so much potential in people that is untapped because their job, their job doesn't sort of suit them well enough or, you know, there's, there's a mismatch in their skills and passions, the job that they do. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's a practical reality to that. Not always can you change it, but sometimes you can change it. And when you do, you can get all of this extra amazing energy and excitement and skill ability from people just by sort of noticing that actually you could you, they could do their job slightly differently but also people are purposeful on the whole it's very very rare that I speak to somebody that I coach somebody who doesn't want to do better be better progress grow develop um and then on the flip side of that, you know, that's about their own personal growth and development. But on the flip side of that, they want to bring value. They want to really feel like they're making a difference in the organization that they're working for. So if there's a disconnect between what they're doing and what the organization uh, is saying that they they do organizationally, or if they're not sort of connected to some sort of overall vision and values, um, then it can be really easy for an employee to turn around and say, like, why am I, why do I bother? Why do I even do this? It's a hearts and minds thing. I mean, we've talked about hearts and minds in in the business world for, you know, for as long as I've been around, certainly um, winning hearts and minds. I think we've lost a lot of hearts because we we sort of just employ minds often we think that it's the minds that are necessary to do the delivery work and and that is absolutely true but the hearts are necessary to stay engaged and excited and motivated and to turn up and do your best work every day and to um you know work collaboratively with your employees and want to go above and beyond that's the heart stuff but i think leaders forget how to connect to people's hearts. Yeah. You, you introduce an interesting paradox in the book, uh, this concept of vitamins versus sugar. And I, I want you to explain that to us um, in, in response to this, this pushback that I want to give you. And, you know, what about the person that says, Natasha, uh, I am conscious. I get, listen, we have programs. We have <laughs> wellness programs. We have fitness programs. We have, we have mental health day. We're, we, we're, we're setting our people up for success. What do you, what do you mean that's not good enough? Okay, so the, 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 vit- the vitamin pills thing is about the fact that we often have, you know, flexible benefits, reduced gym membership, health benefits, um, free fruits, all of that, all that stuff, which, to be honest, is now just the baseline 
Like if you're not doing that stuff, if you're a sort of bigger organization, then you've missed a trick somewhere because that that's just like a basic requirement for a good quality employer these days to provide those things. Um, but, you know, you, you, you have employers who provide all of that and that's great. And they give, you know, 28 days holiday and they might give enhanced maternity pay. Um, and the benefits seem, seem really good. They might have good, um, you know, learning and development provision even, but if they're working their people, um, too hard and the expectations of her people to be constantly connected or the environment or the culture just doesn't feel great you know what if I can't actually speak up and talk about what I need at work what if I can't tell the truth what if I can't be myself then no amount of those benefits make any real difference to my fundamental well-being as a human. So, you know, I, I talk about five different aspects to well-being. So one of them is physical. So yeah, you need to get up and move about and, um, you know, having access to things like reduced gym membership is really good because it's an incentive to get people moving. Um, and people need to be able to eat good food. So having access to good food, whether that be in or outside of the building, all of those things to do with physical wellness are really important. Um, and then there's a whole host of other things. So there's financial wellness. We need to know that we're safe and secure to be well. I mean, financial stress is putting a huge, huge amount of pressure on our modern day workforce. Um, and you can let that all be underground. You can let people deal with that in their own spare time. You can let that be one of the personal problems that people have to deal with when they're outside of work. But employers have a really great opportunity to provide education and support for one of the greatest stressors of our time, which is finances. Why would they not take the opportunity to do that? So, you know, there's a, there's a whole piece around financial well-being. And then the the next bit is, is, is very new and that it's digital well-being. You know, you can um, give people smartphones and laptops and, you know, mobilize them, give them the tools to do their job. But if you expect them to be on them 24-7, if people are sending emails in the evenings and at weekends and you don't um, allow people any opportunity to switch off, well, you're just killing them some other way. You know, you're giving them sweets rather than vitamins. So they're the sort of three, um, I guess, easier ones to fix because they're around education and tools the ones that are harder to fix and this is to do with relationships and culture are firstly emotional and, when, and mental well-being so am i are people able to be themselves in the workplace are they able to support their own mental health have you got ways and means of being able to support mental ill health um are we actually even able to talk about emotions in the workplace? Is that something that's acceptable to do, given that we all experience emotions all day, every day? Why do we suppress discussion around emotion? I just think that that's a bonkers concept that's happened. Um, and that I do, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help. And then the other side of it is social well-being. So that's the fifth, fifth aspect. So we have a fundamental need to belong and to be part of the group. It's why you, you hear so much about diversity and inclusion. Um, I think that calling it diversity and inclusion makes it slightly disconnected from the reality of I am a person who wants to feel included at work, who wants to feel like I can be myself without there being sort of any, and I mean be myself, be my good self. We've all got a bad self, right? But I mean, be my good self at work, uh, be my normal self at work, 
um, and feel like I fit with the part of the group and that I'm able to collaborate with people and that my social um, well-being is supported through bringing people together, through creating an environment of togetherness. There's, there's loads of research now that supports. I mean, actually, there's one key study, which I, I quote all the time because I just think it's so important. And it was done by um, Harvard. And it's called the Grant Study of um, Adult Development. And it was um, it's, it's, it's a longitudinal study that's been done over 80 years where they were trying to figure out what really did lead to long-term health and happiness. And the single biggest differentiator that leads to long-term well-being and, and long-term physical health is the quality of our relationships. Now, given that we spend so much time in the workplace, surely <laughs> the quality of our relationships at work are, are pivotal. So, you know, you can have great relationships with teammates, um, but the relationship with your, your line manager is equally as crucial because if that isn't working well, then your well-being will be affected. You, you create this framework with this model, the conscious leadership model that run, the thread runs through the entire book. And I really love how, how you frame this. And I want, us, I want you to walk us through these five crucial foundations and, I, and, I, and I'll set you up. But if you could just give us, and I don't want to take it away from you, if you could give us when I give you the foundation, what's the key question that we should ask for each one of these foundations? I thought this was brilliant. I need a poster of this. <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was brilliant how, how you how you set how you set these up in your model of uh, of, of conscious leadership. And, and one of the first things that you talk about is the idea of being together or togetherness. Mm. When we're thinking about that concept, like what's mm. the key question that we should be asking? So, how, how can I help you? It's uh, it's it's often the the missing question. It's how can I help me? What do I need? <laughs> um, what do you need to do? What do we need to get delivered? What deadline do we need to meet? But the question that actually bonds and binds teams to work effectively together is is how can I help you? Um, because you know, like uh, there's there's a study um, that was done by Google into what leads to the highest performing teams. And it's the ability to trust one another. It's that interpersonal trust, the ability to sort of depend on each other. If you're, if you're not asking that question of how can I help you, then you're not, you're not building an environment of trust. What's the apprehension that you've seen on the part of younger leaders or people new to a particular company culture, the apprehension of asking that question? even if not overtly, just having a thinking process that, that is framed on, you know, how, how can I help or be of service to the people around me? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, from a managerial point of view, I think managers can often find it hard to be able to help because the environment doesn't set them up to enable um, them to help their people. So, you know, they can make decisions around delivery, but can they make decisions around environmental things so policies or processes or or even politics that will enable them to to be able to respond to the request um but also you know i see a, a massive lack of confidence amongst managers and leaders you know they they maybe had never had any training they were really good at their professional or technical job 
And so, you know, they don't, they're, they're out of their depth when it comes to leading other people. They have a responsibility for these people, but they just don't know how to best support them. Um, this is why I think coaching is just such a, an important skill for managers and leaders, because I think when you learn how to ask people what it is they need and how they can sort of help themselves, you can actually sort out quite a few of the problems without needing to take that on yourself as an additional burden. Um, and also people are just busy, you know. I can remember like when I was leading my own team, just thinking I cannot, I literally cannot take on any more work. So if any of my team need me to help them out with this, I can't do it. I just can't do it. So you just don't ask. You don't ask the question, but it's totally the wrong. It's totally the wrong thing to do. There's a there's a flaw in the organisation if people are so over capacity that they can't ask each other how they can help each other. You also introduced this idea of you know building on 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 the first piece. This resilience be mm. resilient um and and being gro- growing and being effective uh, mm. as a leader w- what's the key question there so that's about what mindset do i need um so the reality of things is that work is hard it is challenging it's tough it's pressurized things show up you know in your personal and in your work life that are really stressful and that are difficult to handle and that catch you by surprise or that trigger you I mean you know we're just human that's life you have to be able to deal with tough situations sometimes and so unless you have got a resilient mindset um, unless you are able to look at those situations through a healthy frame it can be so much harder to deal with them and often when I'm coaching people, that's what we're working on. We're working on the frame. Not, and this has, got, this has got nothing to do with being a, a positive or a negative person. This is to do with your upbringing, your experiences of life, the leadership you've experienced, the culture you work in, the team that you work in, the, the relationship you're currently in. Any of those things can influence the frame or the lens that you look at a situation through. And literally, a lot of the time, actually, you know, I will say to somebody, what if, what about if you looked at it like this? And they're like, oh. And it sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? Like, of course, we should be able to work those things out ourselves. But when you're in your own head and your internal narrative is just going round and round and round, same thing over and over and over again, sometimes you need somebody else to ask you, a different question to to help you to choose the new frame so i just think in the modern world of work we have to build resilience it's it's vital but you can only build resilience if you're not overstretched overworked overwhelmed and if you're supported you've got some resource so it's almost there's a whole pile of things that leads to resilience that isn't just mindset but mindset is sort of at the center of it all can can you help us reframe uh, what it means to be resilient, because some of us may have this conception that being resilient is, you know, I'm, I I never get knocked down or it never goes bad for me. I, I always trudge along and power through it. And and some people are looking at that framework saying, well, if that's what it is, then there's no way that I'm going to be resilient. Okay. So this is where I love Carol Dweck's growth mindset work. 
because um, when you look at things with a growth mindset, you realize that in order to grow stronger, in order to get better, in order to come up with better ideas, in order to build on what's already going well or going badly, you have to fail. Like you have to fail. And and I'm often saying to people um, in coaching when they're like, you know, I don't want to have that conversation because it feels uncomfortable or I don't want to do that meeting because actually, you know, I just, for some reason, there's something holding me back. And very often it's, we really don't like to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel vulnerable. We don't want to feel exposed. We don't want people seeing that we're anything less than a really smart, able delivery machine that can get stuff done on deadline. Um, But that's ridiculous. So you will feel uncomfortable and that's good. And feeling uncomfortable means that you will try and figure out how to how to navigate your way through that discomfort in order to get to a place where you don't feel uncomfortable anymore. But if you go round all of the situations that make you feel uncomfortable, you won't grow. So resilience is absolutely about feeling uncomfortable. It's about diving into that discomfort. It's about having, you know, positive emotions and, you know, uncomfortable, difficult stuck emotions but knowing how to get through that and coming out the other side and going you know what I learned from that and I'm going to move on the next piece of your conscious leadership model that you introduce in your book the conscious effect is the the need for leaders to be awake what's the key question there uh so that's what is going on in and around me Going back to your early, earlier point about consciousness, because we're on automatic pilot, you know, I've had neuroscientists say um, that 95% of what you do um, and think today is the same as what you will do and think tomorrow. So we're on pattern repeat. I mean, we're on a pattern repeat from our childhood. Um, and unless you become aware of what's going on and what those patterns are, and your habits and how you work, then you're not awake. You are on automatic pilot. Being on automatic pilot is great because it feels really comfortable. Um, You know, it's what we also refer to as comfort zone. It means that you don't have to think about new ways of doing things. It means you don't have to challenge your habits and behaviors. It means, you know, when you eat that burger chips and um, chocolate every night for dinner, you don't have to change that because because that's just your pattern. That's just your habit. When you sit on your phone in bed at night at 11 o'clock, uh, that's just your habit. That's your pattern. It's very comfortable. You can get very comfortable. But once again, you know, when you're in that comfort zone, you miss so much. You miss so much. So, you know, uh, uh, unless you're awake as a leader, you could be, you know, dominating the conversations. You could be um, missing some amazing thoughts and ideas amongst your wider team. Um, you could be working in a way that's having a knock-on effect to the wider team that is detrimental. I certainly did that. So I would say to my team, don't do your emails at night. Don't do emails at weekends. You know, don't pick up your phone in the evenings. But I did all of that all the time, constantly. And even though I would get frustrated that they wouldn't listen to me, what I didn't realize is I was creating a ripple effect. So when I caught up with my, you know, 40, 50 emails in the evening, 
I created this like tsunami of of stress <laughs> and work for my team. So it was ridiculous me telling them not to not to pay attention to that stuff because they had to get through it somehow. My team actually turned around to me at one point and said that I had to stop emailing them in the evening. But I think they needed quite a lot of courage to say that, not because I wasn't a particularly nice person, but because they didn't want to let me down. And I think a lot of the behavior you see in organizations is about loyalty and commitment and dedication. It's not about, you know, my leader's not a very nice person. So, um, I need to have this, you know, I, I, I feel like I have to do this work because they're making me. It's because like, I actually quite like my leader or I think that they work really hard. And so I just want to do what they do because that's, that's what they do. So, you know, all of that habit stuff, all those programs and patterns are so, so important to recognize in yourself as a leader, but you have to be awake to do it. And, and to be awake, you therefore need time for reflection you need to ask people for feedback. You need to create a safe space. This is really hard to do um, for leaders, I think, often. Creating a safe space where people can tell them the truth. Because for all the reasons I just said, people often don't want to tell you the truth. But only by having regular conversations with people and bringing this up in the dialogue all of the time about, are we doing this well? Are we behaving well? Is this healthy, the way we behave? Is, it health, is our relationship to digital healthy? And, and the leader holding themselves up and shining a light on themselves as much as, as anybody else in the team would. Just that honest conversation means that they can be a bit more awake. And, and once a leader experiences or wrestles with being awake, it leads us to the next uh, overlap in the conscious leadership model, this possibility of, of growing at, mm. at this stage what's the key question there what can I learn so I have seen and and do see um, many leaders getting to a point in their career where they think that they've probably done most of their development um, you know at the end of the day it's a sort of reasonable assumption to make you've made it to that position through really hard work and commitment and dedication and probably being quite good in your technical or professional role. And now you're leading people. You might be leading hundreds and thousands of people. And so, you know, it's reasonable to think that you don't need to do maybe as much development as, as the more junior people in the organization. I think you have to do more. So what, what actually happens though, is it just becomes slightly more complex and it becomes harder because rather than learning how to do calculations or to, um, you know, to sell products or to structure a business, you're learning how to behave. One of the hardest things to learn how to do, because it means you have to be really introspective. You have to really pay attention to yourself. You have to be really willing to hear constructive feedback from the people around you, which means that you need to have your ego in check. But by the time you've become a leader of people, sometimes your ego cannot be in check because, you know, you're thinking, yeah, like I'm killing this. I'm doing pretty well. You know, my career's gone well. I've gotten this far. I'm earning, you know, good, good money. You might have a nice house. You might have a nice car. You might have really, you know, you might have a lot of status, um, which are all indicators of success. 
However, to be a really solid leader in the modern day of work, modern world of work, um, somebody who can really inspire people and somebody who people want to be led by, the real work is, is on you. And actually, I mean, I work with some really quite inspiring leaders who spend their, their heads, or spend their time with their heads in, in self-development books, learning about how to be a better person. Um, and, and great, absolutely. I mean, we, we really need to continue on that journey. But once again, as a leader, you, you need to be failing and making mistakes and learning from them in order to grow. Because unfortunately, some of the, the biggest and most important um, jumps in your growth come from the most painful, difficult uh, failures. <laughs> it, which brings us to this fifth foundation of the conscious leadership model, being purposeful. What, what's the key question there? And, and it's about why am I doing this? So going back to what I was saying earlier on about um, connecting to some sort of organizational purpose. And I don't mean, you know, I don't mean having a purpose of making money. Most businesses do just have to make money. That's, that's a given. It's a higher purpose. It's, it's a more important, more compelling reason for what we do. And, and you can find that purpose in pretty much any organization, regardless of what they produce whether it be kids' toys or air conditioning units or whether they sell, uh, you know, training. that there's, there's always some beating heart that's led to the creation of those products and services in the first place. Um, and so you can normally find the higher purpose, but I think that it's often lost, you know, over the course of time or, or never created in the first place. And people just are inspired by being able to deliver against something beyond themselves, something greater than, than themselves, and even something sort of societally, being able to give something back. But also the value that I bring, you know, um, people ask themselves that question regularly. What is it I'm doing here that's actually making a difference? Why does it matter? Why would anybody care? And if there's a disconnect there between what they're doing and whether anybody actually cares about it, that's when they become, they become disengaged. You, ha you have, somebody has to care somewhere about what you are doing. And unless you get feedback on that, and unless you get some sort of recognition for the contribution that you're making, um, then, you know, people really do start, start to ask the question of what's the point. And that's often when people, you know, dive out of, a, of an organization and go and find that purpose elsewhere. You, you make the argument early in the book that very few of us uh, really understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. as, as, as you were going through the writing process and the development for, for this book, the, the Conscious Effect, mm -hmm. what were some of the things that you came to understand, uh, learn, or even relearn about yourself in the process? Um, that because I'm a real extrovert, my ability to listen can sometimes be compromised. I mean, I'm a coach. Um, you know, dated every day I'm coaching. So I have had to really hone that ability to listen in a coaching setting. It seems so much easier for me to do, but because I tend to be quite energized and I'm, you know, I'm a real sociable person that my, my ability to listen can be compromised. And as a leader, that's no good. 
that is no good. That's why introverted leaders often have a benefit, really, because they're able to sit back and, and listen to what's going on around them. And really, you know, as far as, as far as employees are concerned, that's really what they want. They just want to be heard. So I think that that's vital. But I think, I mean, probably more profoundly than that, I never, ever stopped. I never really stopped to reflect. I would stop to ruminate. I think that's different, though. I would stop to worry about stuff. I would stop to worry about how I was going to hit a target or how I was going to deliver. But in terms of deep reflection about me as a leader and me as a person and whether I was bringing my best self every day, I didn't really allow a huge amount of time for that. I I actually hated sitting in quiet. Um... I'd always have the TV or the radio or something going on. I didn't really allow myself time for a huge amount of introspection. Um, I allow myself a whole a whole lot more time for that now. Um, but I also give myself more breaks. I also am less tough on myself. I think I used to be my own worst critic, which is, from a mindset perspective, no good. We beat ourselves up so much and it's really, really damaging. Sometimes I often think we do ourselves so much more damage than any organization could ever do to us. So the ability to recognize that internal voice and put, keep it in check is, is really important. But it takes a lot of, a lot of effort, it takes a lot of conscious awareness. Um, I mean, and I do lots of things now to, to look after my well-being. I wasn't very good at taking care of myself. And if I'm honest, the majority of people I talk to aren't, aren't very good at that either. So, um, you know, there's a lot of day-to-day things I do to take care of my well-being. So give us the sales pitch. Say I'm walking through the airport and I'm deciding which book to pick out. And I glance and I see the conscious <laughs> Why, why should I? Yeah, okay. So I, I think this book is really good for anybody who does read and anybody who doesn't read. Um, when I was an HR director, you know, the, I, didn't, I didn't spend enough time reading. And when I wrote this book, I decided to write a book that was really easy to pick up and put down again. So I've, I've written it in 50 chapters, 50 lessons. So if you're time poor, if you're that stressed out executive who doesn't have time to read books, you can pick this one up, read one chapter, um, which is, you know, three or four pages. And you can, you can put something new into practice and take better care of either yourself or somebody else. Um, or do something differently in your team that would make a real difference. Um, and this book will teach you more about yourself. It's called Organizational Wellbeing, but really, in essence, it's a book about learning about you. And if that isn't the single most important thing that you should be doing whilst you're on this planet, learning about you so you can be at your best, so you can make the biggest difference whilst you're here, then I don't know why we're here. Sold. <laughs> so, Natasha, how can we catch up with you if we want to learn more about your work, um, your organization, and the, and, and the people you serve? What's the, what's the best way? Give us all the URLs, shameless plug. Just lay okay, it on. lay it on you. So, okay, so I'm my website 
is www.conscious-works.com. So you can find loads more about what I do and um, all my sort of various contact details there. I'm on LinkedIn. If you just Google um, Natasha Wallace LinkedIn, you'll find me. Um, I'm on um, Instagram if you look up Conscious Works and I'm on Twitter, Conscious Works as well. Natasha, thanks for being our guest today and sharing your journey and about your book, The Conscious Effect, 50 Lessons for Better Organizational Wellbeing. Great. Thank you very much. Great conversation with Natasha Wallace about her book, The Conscious Effect, 50 Lessons for Better Organizational Wellbeing. And I want to encourage you to take another look at your personal well-being. Take another look at your process for self-care and your understanding of yourself and how you respond to the things that are happening around you. And if you lead a team, please don't wait until there's some major issue or challenge to begin helping your team take better care of themselves. Hey, that's all we have for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.